This week's guest is Sean Pelton, super drummer from New York City. He's performed with everyone you could ever imagine. Uh, he's also the uh, longtime drummer in the house band for Saturday Night Live. And we had a fabulous conversation. Special co-host was Jason Brinkworth, fabulous drummer from Regina, good friend of mine. And uh, this was just a wonderful conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. Also, don't forget our sponsor, Stickman Clothing Company, based out of Regina. They have fantastic clothing wear. You can find out their information at stickmanclothingcompany.com. Also, Music City Canada, based in London, Ontario. You can buy all your music equipment there. Uh, they look after you very well, musiccitycanada.com. Also, Morning Buzz Coffee, based out of Hamilton, Ontario. They are fabulous, uh, awesome coffee, owned by two musicians. And uh, go support them at morningbuzzcoffee.com make sure you hit the like button and subscribe on youtube or itunes or spotify any of those listening platforms we love to have you join us on and listen to many other episodes of in session with darren walters and i hope you really enjoy sean pelton in this podcast here we go <laughs> Okay, we're rolling, and this is going to be a great podcast uh, today, and we have a wonderful guest uh, sitting uh, in his studio there. But before we get to uh, to Sean, I'm going to introduce our co-host today, great friend of mine, Mr. Jason Brinkworth in Regina, Saskatchewan. How are you doing, Jason? Good, man. Thank you so much for uh, for letting this thing shake down. This well, is great. thank you for putting it together. It's all because of you, and uh, we appreciate that. And also want to make mention uh, for everyone that's listening, uh, Jason uh, is a fantastic drummer um, and great guy overall, but he also has a new company as well, Stickman Clothing Company, and they sponsor this podcast as well. And I just got uh, some more uh, clothing from you in the mail. It came yesterday morning. So thanks for all that. And it's awesome stuff. So stickmanclothingcompany.com um, and check out all that cool stuff. So. Uh, nice to have you here, and, and congratulations on all your business success. Thank you so much. Yeah. So today is uh, a great drummer, Sean Pelton. Uh, I shouldn't say more than a great drummer, a fabulous drummer. And uh, I know a lot of you will be knowing who he is and his drumming stylings. And, and of course, you see him in the house band on Saturday Night Live. And uh, he's played with everyone you could ever imagine. I was looking over the list, and... and uh, it's quite vast the amount of people you've you've played with and and i should probably mention the more people you haven't played with it'd be a shorter list <laughs> but welcome to the podcast nice to have you here oh man really honored to be here and um thanks for having me and uh, man jason so good to see you it's been a long time so Absolutely. anyway thanks for pulling this so let's let's talk about how you guys uh have your connection and uh talk a little bit about that jason uh well it was uh 2011 and um, I had been running some drum events in Saskatchewan, one-off clinics, and I had always wanted to have a drum festival. And the year before, uh, the, a great drummer from New York, Dom Famuyero, was here. And after the clinic, we were talking, and he said, well, you should just do a festival. Just do it next year. And I was like, well, I have no idea how to do it. So with some parts that were moving around, Keith Urban happened to be in town one weekend in September of 2011. I got a hold of Chris McHugh, and Chris said he'd be into doing a clinic. So I thought, well, who else would I want to have 
come do this. I thought I'd have two guys. And there was a, a modern drummer festival from 2010 that was absolutely amazing. It was, the lineup was incredible, and it was like a wish list of all these people I would love to have. But the one guy on there that I was like, I've been a fan of for a long time was Sean. And I was like, okay, I'm stretching for the moon here, but I'm going to just send a message. I'm going to send a message out there. So somehow I got his contact info, sent a message, and we just started chatting. And next thing you know, he's here for the drum festival in 2011, and it was him and Chris McHugh in a September. And I, I still have no idea how, why he said yes to that. His bags didn't even show up when he, when he did, the, did the event. So, but, he, but it was so amazing and it was incredible. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And that's, you know, we, we had met each other. And his playing's one thing, but man, hanging out with you for that 48 hours, I honestly, that, that changed my life. I, I thought about things uh, a lot differently after spending time with you. It was unreal. And that was a blast. We, we had bad luck, I remember, with the, the luggage. But man, we had great luck at the dice table. Oh, you you did. That's right. We had yeah, we, you know twice. It was it was it was amazing. You came in and you were like a tornado, and then he left town, and everybody was like, "What just happened?" Uh, it like changed the whole city. This guy just came in, uh, and yeah. it was unreal. Yeah, uh, it's always fun when you get lucky on the dice table, man. That is really fun. Yeah, but uh, that and no, it was a great clinic, and uh, man, it was so fun to see Chris play, and then I think he was playing. Uh, in town that that's right we went time and saw too and we get, the next night we went and saw him yeah and he sounded great and uh and you've done it uh years since then too like how, how many years have you done it now well uh, it went up, the, the the festival went up to 2014 and it got real big real fast like it, yeah. it ended up you know we, we had like steve ferroni and bernard purdy was up here and aaron spears and it was just this, this huge lineup and it got big and then we were running a drum camp at the same time and there was just too much going on so the camp went a little longer but those events have subsided since you know, the music school is busier now and other things are just, yeah, just kind of taken over, but I've got the itch yeah, to yeah. do it again. But man, those, that pocket of like four years was magical. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun, man. That's really, so the, the school, are you, are you running a school uh, yeah, up there we, now? Yeah. We've had the school. We, we've had the school. It, it existed. It's, it's been in business for almost 20 years now. Uh, yeah. A couple of us started it and uh, yeah. So just teaching private lessons and stuff. So that transitioned all through this with, online and in person and stuff but yeah it's it's education is a huge part of what goes on you have to give back right that's just yeah. how it's all sort of works yeah what yeah, what is yeah. it about drum clinics that you know really click right because there's i mean there are some guitar clinics you know there's not a whole lot of bass clinics um you know all these clinics but drum clinics seem to really resonate with drummers and i guess it's the community right that that's strong but what do you think that makes that so popular? Yeah, well, you know, drums, they can be so much fun, you know, to just hang out and see somebody, you know, play and um, blow the roof off the place or, you know, show musical sides too. Of, uh, so, man, yeah, the clinic thing is, it can really be a blast. It's kind of a shame that sort of it, we're, we're sort of segueing into an era, you know, with the YouTube thing where maybe the clinic thing isn't as, prominent as it used to be um uh, you know because i remember back in the day that was sort of a chance like if you didn't live in a major center where you could see people all the time you know yeah when when someone would go out and do a drum clinic tour it was such a an occasion you know to see and uh that in the dvd thing you know when uh dci started like 
putting out the, the drum videos, you know, that sort of also was a big marker as far as being able to see your favorite drummers actually play, you know, can sit over and over and you could look at it. But man, the YouTube revolution has really been amazing. And I think there's a lot of great stuff out there, you know, too, with that, that uh, allows you to sort of see, see people and access it over and over and um, anytime that you want. And so it's interesting how it's evolved, though, you know, this idea yeah. of being able to see your favorite players, you know. Yeah, it, it's yeah. neat having the YouTube videos and those all are great. But it's when you actually get to meet someone face to face. Uh, I think that's the the changing moment, right? Because, you know, TV, watching YouTube is just like watching TV. But when you get to see that person right in front of you uh, that, you know, is played on your favorite albums or you just love their drumming, uh, that connection means so much. And, and I think... I hope that once we're through this COVID stuff, that events like Jason does and and drum clinics and those type of events really pick up because I think the connection of being putting everybody back together again is really important and it's really important to the music industry. Yeah, well, I also love what you're talking about. You know, this idea of seeing something in person from a standpoint of like, you know any musician really but the drum thing especially like you when you see like in new york it's so interesting like some of the spaces are so varied like those some like the 55 bar is a very small space you know and to go in and see like keith carlock or you know a charlie drayton or lenny white adam nussbaum all these great musicians that you can see in a space that that's so compact and what's so interesting so many different levels of it, but also how they choose dynamically to play a small space. Like in New York, there are a lot of um, physical spaces that aren't that big. So how a drummer adjusts his touch and the tuning and the setup, you know, versus if they were playing at Madison Square Garden. And, um, you know, it's interesting about New York musicians in that way, or maybe that's a generalization, but the ability and the range, like, let's say rock drummers coming out of playing in smaller spaces physically is, is different than if you're, if you're going and ready to go out on a stadium tour, you know, maybe the presence behind the drums and how you would uh, approach the situation. And um, so I've always, I love what you're talking about leaning into it in, in that when you go to see someone play live, you can get a sense of how they play the room, you know, yeah. it's, and it's interesting. And I, I think that's a really cool point to talk about as a drummer um you both of you I, I play a little bit of drums not close to any of your skill level but it's on my list of things i've done in my life but i also am a studio guy i'm in front of house guy i'm a recording engineer and 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 we deal with drummers all the time and i think talking about playing in different size rooms is so important because i always have and i wouldn't say arguments but i'd, I'd have discussions with drummers that when we're playing a certain size room that you really have to play to the room um, and can't always play full tilt all the time because it doesn't work in every room and lots of times i'll have a discussion i'll be at front of house or something and you're doing a sound check and you know you first of all kick drum and everyone slams their kick drum and they go to the snare and slams their snare and then i'll stop and say are you actually going to play it that hard in here for this gig? And they're like, well, probably not. So why are we sound checking it this way? 
<laughs> it's okay. really like, yeah, yeah. why aren't you playing it the way you're actually going to play it in the gig? Because that's the way I want to hear it when I'm doing a sound check. But it's it's I've always found over the years of of you know playing a lot of performing art centers and doing sounds and places where you have to actually talk to drummers on how to play quieter. It's the one of the biggest things I found with drummers being able to play quieter and still be able to keep a really good groove together, right? Because um, they know how to play loud, but as soon as you start playing quieter, um, you'll find one, you know, maybe the kick will be soft and the snare will still be loud. It's, it's not a consistent quiet over the whole kit, right? Or the whole thing doesn't seem to come down or else they'll start losing a bit of a, the groove a bit uh, when they, because it's uncomfortable for them to play at that volume. What, what, what advice do you have as a guy who's played multiple size venues on how to approach playing in a you know smaller environment where you can't be the the loudest thing there? Yeah, well, man, it's such a good a good thing um, that you're bringing up. It's interesting with with drums. Like I remember Art Blakey had some great quotes about. He he said like it should be it should be as soft as rats pissing on cotton, <laughs> or you know, or like or the idea of. Uh, you know, like screaming a whisper, like, you know, like there's intensity, but maybe something's really soft. Uh, but man, you know, um, like the muffling of drums, like I've seen people be able to play with physical presence, but the actual sound coming across isn't so loud. Like, you know, even like that classic footage of Ringo with the tea towels, you know, playing get back, you know, on top of the, but you know, that muffled kind of drum thing, like, uh, I remember I've seen a lot of cats like you know there's such great things out there with uh, EQ mutes and the uh, BFSD overlays and then even just the T-Tal thing itself you know like say that goes over a snare drum you might be able to then lay into it physically because there's some people that you play with that they want to feel a physical presence from the drummer you know yeah and and um so those kind of things can allow you to actually hit hard, but the actual volume coming off the drums might not be the same. The other thing is uh, I have some of these sticks here. Let me just grab one real quick. Um, you know, like I've messed with forever trying to deal with like, this is a, a Vader kind of a plastic plastic thing. And then yep. this is one of their rods with a thicker, but like I have all these different variations of, uh, thing so like on one side you can get the attack of the wood thing on the cymbal and then this gets a more gushy fatter sound on the drums without a ton of volume yeah. so like especially for singer songwriter gigs in smaller spaces you know and that whole sort of a uh, vh1 unplug revolution that happened with you know drummers bringing kind of a percussive approach with the drum kit uh there's such a wide range now between brushes and a stick and then combinations like this, uh, and and then the muffling thing that you can bring to the table, but you can actually play physically with some presence if you're having to rock out with with things like this without like killing everybody, you know, yeah. volume wise. Um, but you know, it's funny. One of the trickier things was uh, there's a couple times I've had to play at the White House, and uh, you know, there was one of these things where it was you know, President Obama's like eight feet in front of 
right at center stage in the first row and then the drum kit is there you know and it's like yeah. you know this this thing there were things that really needed to have physical presence and energy but you just didn't want to blow everybody's brains out you know so i remember having to deal with the muffling thing and using some some tricks like this that allowed for physical playing energy wise but not a lot of heat volume wise you know so um but those rooms like that and situations like that can be really tricky. And I, I love what you're saying about one of the hardest things to do is to play with energy at a soft dynamic. But, uh, you know, and the other thing, though, is that if all of a sudden you're having to do an audition for a stadium tour and like, you know, keeping strong and even time where somebody wants to see a lot of physical action happen, you know, like if it's Ozzy Osbourne or a metal tour or something like that. I mean, man, the the physical presence of that kind of drumming is really challenging too, you know? So I, I think, you know, if you're going to work a lot in a lot of different situations, the wider range you have to fit into different situations will can allow you to work more, you know, but uh, I always hesitate to think that one's better than the other or, you know, cause different situations need, um, need different, you know, one man's food is another man's poison. Alan Dawson used to always say that to, uh, to me about, the great drummer, drum teacher. And uh, it makes a lot of sense for surviving, you know, the wider your range of what you can bring to the table, you know? Yeah. It was, yeah. It was great seeing the sticks that you, you pulled out. Obviously I've used and seen both those separately, but I've never seen them actually put together like you just yeah. showed there. And that, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. It's cool because, you know, with the sub, like sometimes if you're just playing with these, it, you don't get a lot of high end detail. Like if you're on a ride symbol, it just kind of yeah. can be a du dusty sound, which can be cool, you know. But if you need clarity, it's right there on the other side, you know. To, anyway, yeah. So um, there's a lot of, man, there's a great Canadian company uh, that makes these things. Ah. Headhunter, Headhunter Creation. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one Dave of. Dave Rundle, amazing. Yes. Yeah. Really creative cat. And one of his things is, I know I have one somewhere, uh, is this thing called a sporon or something maybe, but it's kind of like the corn husk version of this. And then he's got some thinner plastic things and then a little ball, a beaded ball so that it allows you to have even more clarity if you need it, like on a hi-hat or, uh, but kind of a two-sided approach for, for that, you know, but it's interesting with, you know, the whole singer songwriter thing and, having to come up with parts in the context of, let's say, acoustic instruments or acoustic guitar and, and uh, these kind of combinations and the approach of exploring what's out there beyond just like sticks. It's a whole world of color out there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'd speaking, like that. Well, speaking, and speaking of dynamics, just at our clinic 10 years ago when we did the festival, I remember, so Sean's presentation was super cool the way he did it and broke down songs and stuff. But at one point, we had an overhead projector and he had a chart on the projector. So I was kneeling down and I was following along for the audience to see as he was playing. He's playing the song Seven Angels by Bruce, Bruce Springsteen. So he, he laid into the groove and I was, about, I was about three feet away from the drums. And man, I have never felt like I was being towed behind a semi like that in my lifetime. It was unbelievable. Just the feel that was coming off the drums when you were playing was amazing. But if you want to see Sean, like, this is just my own personal thing, but if you go watch the Sheryl Crow DVD that he did and you want to see that physical presence of really playing, you get a big variety of what he's doing in there. The Modern Drummer Festival with House of Diablo, all the creative stuff he did on that, 
unreal. But there's a record he did with Abby Lincoln in 2007. Man, that is one of the most beautiful pieces of playing I've ever heard. The oh, man. That, gorgeous. Yeah. I really appreciate, I really appreciate that. Um, thank you. You know, that Abby Lincoln record, I, I'm really proud of that. And it was, a, it was a chance where we were encouraged to, to really try to go left and be creative. And, and that's what's interesting about, you know, making records and stuff. Like, I remember talking to Jerry Murata about this, who's an incredible inspiration, great creative drummer, and often comes up with left field type parts. And um, he brought up the, the fact that, you know, like, I think he had just done some stuff with Mitchell Froome and, and he had used the drum kit that, uh, remember those drums, Taos, T-A-O-S, they were like the Indian, but they were, people would make drum kits that he was making a drum kit out. It was very creative and like calfskin heads and very unique sound and uh, he used it on, a, on somebody's record and I thought it was so cool. And he said, yeah, it's great, but you know, you don't always get the opportunity to bring that kind of thing to the table. So, you know, like that in situations where things are more straight ahead, those kind of possibilities might not even be, uh, you know, on the table. But man, that Abby Lincoln record is, was one of the things where you're in the studio and they're encouraging that kind of, uh, you know, hybrid approach with, you know, very Keltner influenced, you oh, know, yeah. in, in a way and all that kind of stuff. And uh, instead of a high tom, maybe putting like a, a really small high tom that's tuned like a timbali or the other way, putting like a, you know, something detuned with jingles on it. And it's, it can be really a lot of fun, you know, giving the leeway to even, even go there. But uh, point being is that it's, it's interesting when you're making records and getting called in like a, uh, having a radar for what's needed, you know, and, and that Abby Lincoln, it would be a great example of um, being able to just go crazy and as creative as you can go, you know, but it's, it's a context thing. It's just interesting now that, that you don't always get the chance to do that, you know, of course. Yeah. 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 Speaking yeah, yeah. of kind of the radar thing, knowing what to bring to a session, what, what is your conversations usually like when you're, getting getting hired to do a session going in and knowing what to bring in for a session how do you usually approach those conversations yeah man you know um it's interesting with that like i think having a radar for knowing when maybe a lot of communication is good and maybe when when just uh not getting into a lot of a lot of communication is also good yeah uh, but it's, you know, I used to it bring in a lot of options. Like, uh, it's funny, this thing with the Dallas kits that we were talking about. I remember I was working with Cheryl Crow and they had just done something with Jerry. And she was like, you don't happen to have one of those like Dallas drum kits, do you? <laughs> you know, like, and I had one of the snares and man, I bring in all this stuff, but I didn't happen to have a full kit of the Indians, you know, skinhead drums and stuff, but I had a ton of other options. But, you know, there was nothing like make sure you bring in the Indian drum kit for this session. You know, there wasn't a lot of communication about that. Um, so, man, it can go, you know, records are made a million different ways. I remember this thing I did with Bob Dylan. Like I was sort of told like, hey, man, don't bring in a lot of gear. That might make Bob nervous. Like, you know, bring in a small, you know, he didn't want to see a lot of options probably. Uh, or anyway, that was sort of the message, you know. And then, um, you know, other times, I think when a producer or an artist walks in and sees that there's a selection of snare drums to choose from, it makes them feel good right off the bat about, oh, wow, 
well, this looks like we're really in a candy store of, of options, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's wild with that, like, I think having a certain amount of self-direction sometimes can be really great. Like, well, what snare drum do you think might fit this track right off the bat and be set up, ready to go with that, you know, as opposed to maybe starting off asking if someone wants to hear eight different options, you know? Yeah. then there's other times where it could be where the, they would love to hear eight options right off the bat and they feel very involved in the choice of it and stuff. So that dynamic of uh, the communication thing and the give and take and having a radar for when people might want to be involved in that and when they, you know, there's so many things, you know, like if a producer or artist is tracking a whole band, there's a lot of moving pieces there. If it's just a drum session, you know, that's a focus on the drums is maybe a little bit more on that but like that springsteen track that you were talking about you know i think it was just the snare drum that i put up first and we went with it and was more about playing to a track that had a drum machine that was in place and making it feel feel like you were in the room when it was going down you know um so there wasn't a lot of swapping out but then there'll be other times with tracks where they want to hear 10 different options to make sure they're getting what they want it's interesting with the sound thing too you know how that's evolved like with sound replacement and and uh you know plugins like drumagog and all these things that came on the scene you know you can track with a certain setup and then later hear it mixed and really feel like the sound has really been tweaked quite a bit with like samples and and different stuff you know so it's interesting how the technology has evolved with all of that stuff too you know so how, how do you feel about that when you've laid a session down and you come back and you can tell that it's been, you know, heavily triggered? Does that, does that bug you or you just, you know, or is it just, it's part of the, part of the thing? You know, it's felt like it's become part of the thing sometimes. And, um, you know, a big thing about being a session player and, and work for hire when you go in, you know, and try to do a good job and you do your best. And I think there's a bridge across about learning how to let go, you know, and uh, like, you know, if you hear something later and it's been tweaked or maybe chopped up and this fill was put here, or there's so many ways that things can be adjusted now, you know? And uh, I think, I think having a good sensibility of uh, doing your best, and then being able to let go is what can be can be helpful for your sanity, you know, in the music business. <laughs> yeah. Uh, speaking of sessions, do you have do you have that one snare that you feel that yeah, this is the one I always like to start with? Or uh, I guess it depends on the session, but there's got to be one or two in the collection that kind of get chosen more than others. Yeah, there's a couple drums that seem to. Uh, always be good starting points like uh, the Ludwig Black Beauty. Uh, I've always I've had really good luck with that, and uh, you know that Ludwig Superphonic that I think is the most recorded drum in history is a really uh, standard choice. There's a Brady um, there's a Brady drum that's a twelve by seven that I just love for that that kind of high pitched tight thing. I, it's always works and is magic. Um, you know, at SNL, I use this uh, DW 15-inch solid snare, and the 15-inch side is, size is really cool because it's, uh, it's shallow, like maybe five inches deep, 
so the response is quick with the snare uh, for like the funk funk type stuff that Lenny Pickett, who runs the band, an amazing sax player that we get into with him a lot. Uh, and but the wider size of it, you know, gives some chest to it. Uh, and then I have a side snare that's kind of like the sim similar to what the that 12 by 7 kind of size for two options with snares, you know. But for for records, uh, there are I think there are snares that that fill a slot and uh, the Black Beauty Radio King solid shell drums, solid shell drums with the uh, baseball top edge can do a really warm fat thing. That's beautiful. Um but you know what's interesting about drums too is, you know, if you know how to tune drums and muffle drums and adjust the snare and you can make a lot of magic happen with tuning and your touch and then the way something's mic'd and compressed and, and all of that. There's a lot of moving pieces to it, you know, it's interesting. But there are some, there are some pieces that I can always count on, I feel like, yeah. Yeah. That certainly is the tuning of a drum kit is, you know, how important is that? I mean, that's the, uh, I always find that uh, as drummers out there, you would know better, but there's almost, I don't think as, as much learning or YouTube videos or talk about proper ways of tuning a kit. Um, uh, am I right or wrong on that? It should, there should be more education on that. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, the, the tuning thing, you know, can be very mysterious to a lot of people. Um, there is sort of like this physical, I think, properties about the bottom head in relation to a top head. So like if the bottom head is tighter than the top head, the air moves more, so it kind of will ring longer perhaps. If it's the same pitch, you know, that it doesn't ring as long. And then if it's looser, maybe uh, it's even a shorter decay. And then, you know, detuning uh, a lug sometimes will kind of get you that bend, you know, like, so the relationship of the, all of that. And uh, then also the muffling thing can, you know, like a, a really bright jazz kit uh, with coated ambassadors is going to sound a lot different than, um, you know, a fatter uh, vintage kit with bigger sizes that maybe have tea towels on it, obviously, you know, so then it gets in also to muffling and head choice. But this physical relationship between the bottom head and the top head is one thing that I think is interesting to sort of grasp and understand. And then also this idea of detuning one lug can get that bend thing with toms, you know. Yeah. There's people that go as deep as trying to tune the toms to the pitch of the song they're in. And yeah. I think that's an interesting that's an interesting way to go, you know. And then uh, for me, it's a little bit more intuitive. Like I can tell if something's working or not and we'll tweak it if it isn't, you know. Um, but uh, it, it, is, it is kind of a dark science for some people. So, yeah, more knowledge would probably be a good thing on that. Yeah. yeah and just uh, studying players, you know what I mean? Like if, you, if you're listening to a guy like Levon Helm and you listen to the sound of his kit, which is his hands playing, but those drums are fairly loose, but he's pulling an amazing tone out of there. And it's like, well, that didn't have much to do with any tensioning or tuning he's done. He's just, you know, he's playing yeah. Levon, well, it's Levon Helm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. I, I mean, I'm glad you bring him up because um, I was so lucky to have been around some of those midnight rambles and gotten to play with him. And uh, that whole scene up there in Woodstock is was magical when that was happening and um, when he was around. And 
you know, he, his drums were sort of muffled. He had sort of the zero rings on some of the drums, you know, for some muffling. And, um, but you're right. It is a lot of his touch, but, uh, total different tuning and setup than let's say Stuart Copeland with the police where maybe things are cranked and ringing and, you know, cracking like, uh, he had more of a, a little bit deader, warmer sound, but what an incredible musician, man. Wow. Yeah. So inspiring wow. to me. Right Absolutely. Now. And the fact that you got to hang with him and play at those things, like that's just, that's yeah. a story in itself. I can't even imagine all the stories from, from that. Yeah. Well, it was cool. You know, he would always have other drummers around sometimes because he would come out and play mandolin on some things and then someone else, you know, would sit behind the drums and, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got to play uh, some with them up at Newport before he passed away for the uh, folk festival. And um, um, even after he passed away, I've done some of the shows up there. You know, the, he was very, um, very giving and uh, welcoming and arms out, you know, and, and uh, such a great spirit musically, you know, and soulful singer and um but he's one of the guys that you can really learn a lot just from being in the room and watching somebody play, you know, like yeah. Darren, like you were saying, you know, earlier, just being in the room with people and seeing them yeah. and their approach and how they play a space. He's, he, he was magic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of those guys I found that I've sat in on sessions and, and different things. If you're at the NAM show or something, you see somebody and it's not even learning their techniques. It's just the inspiration you get from them is yeah. the, the valuable lesson and it makes you go home and want to to work harder and um you know obviously you pick up cool techniques and different things but i think for me it's always been you know seeing someone and the inspiration you get from how great or how moved you were from them that inspires you to get better and, and work harder at what you do yeah i love that the idea of of seeing someone and being inspired by it as opposed to like oh man i could never do that i got to you know, <laughs> kill, yeah. But, yeah, so um, that's a great point, the inspiration of it, yeah. And, and a guy like Sean is so diverse in, in everything he plays, and that's one thing that I've always found, the players that I've always loved have been the most diverse guys that could go from playing with an Aussie, but then going and playing on a jazz record and playing with whatever, and it's like your career has spanned that, tenfold and continues to and so when you were when you were young what sort of got you into that diversity were you listening to a lot of different music were you into a lot of different things or yeah well you know it's interesting like when you grow up in the states at least back in the 70s you know there was sort of like the music thing was part of the public schools you know that when you came up you had to take music and uh, so you know if you come up through that sort of hang and you're in the band. And then when you get a certain age, there's all of a sudden the stage band or the jazz band, you know, they call it. And then, um, you know, so I was a part of all that stuff. And then, um, but what was really lucky and fortunate about what you're talking about as far as having a wide range is that I started working in a band at a really young age. So I was sort of doing gigs by 14 or something like that around Missouri and different stuff like that. And um, so I was sort of on, on one hand really, into the whole jazz thing that like that world takes you to and like you know going to uh back then they had these stan kenton camps and uh that was amazing like like uh 
you know, I grew up near Kansas City, and then Dave Weckle, he was from like the St. Louis area, and they would have a Kenton camp, Stan Kenton camp at Springfield. I think Gary Hobbs was playing drums with Stan Kenton, then was a, was a great drummer. And, uh, you know, I remember like Dave's a little bit older and sitting there, and then, you know, Gary was like, man, this guy could become, you know, the next, you know, and then they went and did it. You know, it was amazing. So those kind of opportunities, like the JB, Jamie Abersall had those camps, you know, and I know in Canada there's like Banff and all those great yeah. programs up there, you know. Wow, so, yeah, so that sort of led to then, uh, you know, I went to Indiana University uh, and was a jet in the jazz program there. And uh, they had a great music school. And then I got to study with Alan Dawson for a couple summers. That was just really mind-blowingly uh, influential. But what was so lucky is I was sort of doing the jazz thing, but Kenny Aronoff was based in Bloomington at that time. And that was right at the beginning of the John Cougar Mellencamp sort of thing with hits in the early 80s and stuff. Yeah. So, man, I, I don't think I could have been more fortunate as far as always having this wide range of streams I was having to paddle around in and influences, you know, and, uh, um, and, and through, through school, I wasn't just doing the jazz thing with blinders on. Like I was, I was in a band, which another lucky thing, like Crystal Talaferro was in this band who's gone on to play with everybody. She's with Billy Joel's band now, but, um, and Everett Bradley was in the band. who's now, uh, he was, out with Springsteen and so there was this pocket of musicians that were a part of this band and that whole scene back then Chris Bode was in school at the time that we were all there and and Bob Hurst the bass player that has had this incredible jazz career and Jim Beard plays with Steely Dan now anyway blah 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 blah. so it was this really amazing pocket of time there and of course Kenny was a huge influence and I was you know taking lessons with him and uh man I don't know if I could have been more fortunate or lucky to have had exposure to these great mentors and teachers, you know, yeah. coming up. And it was all over the map. It was a really wide range. So then, you know, something like an SNL where, you know, you do have to have kind of a, a huge range that you can sit in style wise that really was helpful, you know, as opposed to just going down one, one track, you know? Yeah. Very lucky. No kidding. Well, it's, and it's just great how the school, not so much the school system, but all the school opportunities that came along, you know, helped with that stuff as, as well as working outside. Like I know that, I know how valuable that is. And, and especially for young players, you know, with YouTube and stuff, you know, you could, you know, go watch Miles Davis with Tony Williams play from the sixties, or you could go watch Jimmy Cobb, or you could go watch Ginger Baker. You could, you could go watch anything. And I think young students need to, they need to, be into that like i think they should be open-minded because now it's at it's there for them yeah yeah it's i know I, I was thinking about that the other day you were talking about the youtube thing that um i remember there used to be someone that you could order the vhs tapes of say you know elvin with coltrane or or you know yeah. tony with miles and like man i would you know save up and try to get some of these like bootleg vhs tapes and uh, and now you know to have access to all of that stuff uh 24 hours a day. I mean, that's pretty amazingly cool, you know. Um, it's almost yeah, too much. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But this, but this balance, I think, of like being really hungry to learn and all those kind of opportunities, uh, balanced with actually having to work and play four sets a night and, and make a gig happen and stuff like that was, you know, really, really a great 
great mixture of stuff. Yeah. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Spending lots of time with Kenny. Uh, I imagine that's gotta be a blast. Uh, yeah, he's really special. What an inspiration and high, high energy and just, uh, you know, he was really open and I learned so much from him about, you know, like just the process of showing up at a session and trying to, uh, right away get into the nuts and bolts of like, well, what's a part, what, how would you would approach this in a part and come, cause you know, it's like, it's a jazz, with a jazz background. It was more about setting up a feel and a vibe and, you know, there would be parts, but it wasn't as specific as, you know, you know, or, or, and then the chorus happens and it's or, or whatever, like all that whole perspective of, you know, fills that lead into a chorus versus fills that might like come out of a chorus back to a verse and, whether they hit a cymbal crash or not because the vocals, you know, like all this kind of perspective that gets into making records. Uh, man, he, he was, uh, I, I learned so much just being around him and, and him, you know, developing that, you know, and he went on to become one of the most successful session drummers of all time, you know? And so oh, yeah. being around when that was just starting and, and stuff was uh, a really cool window to see you know and be influenced by do you yeah. remember what your first session was uh well um you know there were you know come coming up in new york there was a whole thing of do, doing demos and and people's projects and then you know um I remember I got a break playing on a Brecker Brothers thing really close uh, early on, uh, and that was that was pretty early on. And then that record went on and it got a Grammy, I think, for one of the contemporary jazz performances, which was lucky. But how I got in was I sort of knew the producers, and I think the drummer, who's one of my fa my favorites, and we don't even doesn't need to know who, who but uh, I think he, that guy had a very specific idea of what thing should be like it was sort of like a it was one of these like kind of swampy uh halftime shuffle things and i think he kept hearing this sort of new orleans stardom approach for it which it was a very cool idea but it took up way too much space for what the producers wanted which was you know there were some programmed elements with percussion and different stuff and they wanted the drums to have more air and space around this stuff that was happening so anyway i remember that was uh, one, one of the first things that, you know, ended up having some success. And it was an interesting learning thing about, you know, having conviction, you know, the person that was there had such a conviction about what they were going to do. And it was hard for them to let go of that and, and explore what the other people, the producers wanted. And then someone like me was more of a blank slate of like, just so thrilled to be there and let, let's try this and, Oh, okay. You don't want to do that. Okay, cool. Yeah. That, let's not do that. And, you know, just making it happen, how they sort of heard it. And it's an interesting balance about when you're called to make records, like there's times where they want what you bring to the table, maybe with like, um, like you mentioned the Abby Lincoln thing, like, so, Oh man, let's, let's call somebody that has sort of a real percussive, you know, combination sticks, blast sticks and, and things happening and very unique take on this versus the idea of like, we need someone to come in that will listen to what we want and give us what we want because we know what we want or we think we know what we want at least. And, yeah. you, you know, so it's just interesting, this balance of like having a conviction 
about what you're hearing, but also being able to let go of that and give the people what they want since they're sort of running the show sometimes, mostly, always. You know, Shakira was a great example of that. Like, and uh, when I worked with her, I was in Vancouver at that great studio. Um, Brian Adams, I guess, yeah. owns it. The warehouse, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, she, uh, she had made demos of stuff. And man, she was set on hearing those demos reproduced note by for note, but with real players, you know. And then after she got that, she would maybe allow you to, you know, uh, do what maybe you thought. <laughs> but long story longer is that um, it's really records are made in so many different ways. And this idea of being able to have flexibility in all the different situations that you might come across it is a huge survival skill for, you know, playing drums for a living with headphones on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Well, and, and the only way to learn that I'm, I'm guessing you, you would agree, but the only thing that teaches you that is being in those situations and playing with other people like books don't teach you that there's nothing other than experience and kind of going, Oh, no to self next time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's right. Like, yeah. That's the masses, you know, and, and, for young kids, you just have to get in a room with people and play music. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it really, it gets into having a radar about people in a way. Like, you know, if, if you're in a band and all you're doing is sort of your band and making records and you, like, you have a strong personality and approach, I mean, I think that's really great. But it's also interesting if you're going to survive playing in a lot of different situations you'll probably come across times where you might be asked to do something that isn't your first take on things or instincts or even your second or third. And it really gets into, you know, maybe sometimes having to be a human drum machine for what somebody really wants. And uh, if you can hang with the wide birth of that, it's a great survival skill because um, it's not always going to be maybe what you think it should be, you know, as the drummer. It's, you've got to have the flexibility to fit into a myriad of different ways that it could go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting. I'm, I'm, I want to get to your take now on, and I've heard a few people comment about nowadays, everything is so locked into a, a click. Um, everyone seems to want to have that just on the grid type approach to recording. Um, and how many sessions nowadays do you do where they just toss the click and just let the band play? Um, it seems to be kind of rare nowadays, but I, I would wish that approach would come back a lot more because it seems to be, you know, there always is a little push and pull uh, going on in music. And it feels like when you're locked into the click all the time, you lose a little bit of that. I mean, it's, it's part of the thing nowadays, but uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's such a good question. You know, I've kind of taken that qu that that thing and <laughs> chopped it out of my brain and put it off the side because, like, I've often wondered, like, if we'll look back at this era of music making as being this crazy thing where everything was sort of locked into a set tempo, you know, for the most part, like 90% of things or something. And um, so... Man, I don't know how to answer if, if one's better or worse. All I know is that to survive, you've got to be great at playing with the click and super comfortable with it. And there is an art to it that people that can make it feel really organic and that uh, 
remember talking to David Spinoza about this, who's a really great rhythm guitarist that was a New York session player that has done everything like Aretha and Dr. John and everything. So uh, he came up in the late 60s. He grew up with Rick Morata and all these guys. And I remember him talking about, yeah, when, you know, when we first started doing sessions, he goes, it was crazy. The click track started happening and there weren't that many people that could really play to it so that it was comfortable, you know, and then it became... And then especially in New York, the guys that talked about like the disco era and everything being at 120 and this whole, you know, yeah. nonstop ses sessions of, of that, that whole thing. So my point being that there is an art to playing with a click and making it feel great. And the idea that when you get to a chorus that maybe there is some kind of lift that feels like it happens, even though you haven't sped up, you know, subtly or something. And the idea of laying into a fill like, like uh, Gad talks about this on one of his DVDs um, in session. And, um, you know, he talks about like playing. And if, if all of a sudden he has to go into 16th notes into a chorus, like starting to hear the subdivision before he even makes the move into it, like so that his body is sort of lined up to make that happen. And then it's sort of like the velocity and volume swell of it, like gives us this impression that you're sort of moving forward with actually without actually tipping forward tempo-wise, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, like, there's a real real art to playing deep, deep in the pocket to a click track. And, uh, you know, like on SNL, man, we'll see bands all the time come on, and there's a lot of track going on, but some of the drummers are just tearing it up with a track going on, and you know, and it's like... Um, you would think, like, oh, don't they feel restricted or, like, that they have handcuffs on and stuff like that, and... Uh, you know, maybe 30 years ago, that would have been the case, but there's a whole generation of cats who can make magic happen within the context of click track playing, you know. Yeah. So, you know, that being said, I like what you're bringing up about there's been times where, you know, you go in to do a session and you feel like after they've sort of blended in samples and then maybe lined everything up and cut and paste this and that, the other thing that, you know, it almost could have been anybody or or a, a machine or, you know, and um, so I, I try not to think about it too much yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it can lead down a lot, a lot of different roads, you know, and, uh, but it does make it easier for the people that are making records sometimes about, you know, editing. And if the bridge from take nine that the singer did, like if everybody's tracking together, the fact that they can cut that into the magic of the take of, of, of number three, or, you know, like all these, like, options and if you have musicians that are comfortable making magic with in the confines of click like i saw i was watching you mention purdy um there was a thing with purdy and and uh chuck rainey talking and they uh, both kind of said that uh, the click was you know they looked at it as another person in the band oh yeah, yeah you know like that they played with and stuff and i thought that was really insightful to hear you know and purdy talked about i think that the era of bridging from playing with a click without playing with the click. And, you know, you can approach it with some breathing and sort of lean on top if you need to and settle back. It's interesting. Like there's a real dance with it that can happen, you know, that can be, but man, the big question about whether or not we're in this era that's sort of handcuffed with this concept uh, is a good question. And yeah. I'm not sure what the answer is, except to say that, I have seen people blow a roof off the place still having to deal with a click track, you, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, if that, yeah, so there, is a, there can be an art to it, yeah. 
Amen. Is there yeah. a uh, a click track you personally like to play to? Is there a particular sound, or, or do you like to create your own at a session, or do you kind of just deal with what they give you? Man, there is, and I think there's something to that sometimes. Like I've I've heard people say that like a cowbell can be so piercing that it it can make almost a nervous thing happen. Like depending on the tempo and the feel, but I I like hearing subdivisions of an eighth note. So like a a cross stick quarter note with like a shaker playing eighth notes. Like I find that can be really great. I remember reading an article once about Larry London, who was a great session player in Nashville, since passed, but incredible feel and pocket. And I think he talked about like, you know, with a ballad, like actually wanting a click track that had each 16th note in it, like, and then when he would go to do a fill, he could actually like sense the space and just line the shit out of his, you know, drum fill with like the click track that was happening. So it's interesting, you know, sometimes people like to program kind of a, a loop thing that sounds maybe more musical than just a straight eighth note thing. So yeah. I do like having a subdivision though, sometimes with the quarter note, if it's at an eighth note thing. Yeah. Cause it, 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 it's helpful for me. I like it that. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Jason, I know you felt like um, well, the, <laughs> when, with the grid, just talking about the, you know, that, that and the editing and everything that can go on. Uh, there's, there's certain players I find, you know, like, you know, a Steve Jordan or a Steve Gattershawn or guys that just have this presence and this spirit in how they play, which I think is a big part of what they're hired for. I don't know that a grid could really take that away. I think there's still that sort of emotion that does come out in your playing that would be, okay, maybe it's more strict, but it still has this underlying sort of thing. I don't know. Like certain every player yeah. have this personality that does come out of them. And I've always found that in your playing. Whenever I hear it, I'm like, okay, it's just bursting. And then having met you, I'm like, well, that's why he plays like that. That, that yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing completely makes sense now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love what you're saying about that, like the attitude and presence behind a kit. And, um, you know, you, got, you, you were mentioning, Darren, about doing front of house and sort of the, the kick drum, snare drum levels. Like, you know, one thing that was so insightful getting to work with Steve and double drum with Steve Gadd, because it's so unusual to be two drummers to be together, was just to actually hear his balance of how he, the, the drum kit with how he mixed himself, you know, as a drummer. And like his right foot is very, very like solid and strong. And, and he gets the like clearest, like cons most consistent cross stick sound that I've ever heard. Like, you know, a cross stick sound can be a hard thing to really yeah. have have be like consistent and beautiful anyway so his touch on the drums and the way he he approaches and and i've often wondered if like velocity relationships or volume like and how that affects feel can be just as important as where something sits on the grid you know so like the way someone interprets you know uh you know, drummer A, B, and C, the, the pony rhythm of and how the volumes sit, you know, how that comes across feel-wise, I think can be just as important as it lining up absolutely right, you know. And um, so, yeah, there's a, that's, I love what you're saying, Jason, about a drummer's personality and presence and what's going on with ghost notes, you know, and... Uh, the swagger of how the eighth notes interpreted, interpreted. 
And, uh, and then the halftime shovel thing, you know, is really like a wide open universe of where that lays as far as uh, like the, uh, the MPC drum machine, you know, which is like one of the big things for hip hop, like uh, the quantized thing on it, the way it works is like, it's like 50 to 75. And right in the middle at 66 is like a perfect triplet. So when it gets into halftime shuffles, like, you, you know, or like a wide open or really tight and then right in the middle, the same thing. But where I'm headed is, is that, you know, the quantized range of something, it, it can, it can be a moving target with halftime shuffles and these type of things and the way people interpret all, all of that, you know, is, is also another big thing with like ghost notes and, and stuff like that, you know? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you hear so many different players play that. You know, you hear Jeff Picaro play it. You hear Omar Hakim play it, Ash Stone. And they all have – it's the same idea, but it all sits differently just relating I, – I believe it's just their, their just personality sort of pushes it that way. You know, obviously how they've developed technique and stuff too, but I think that has a lot to do with it. But, yeah, that's a good example because that's a hard groove. Like that is very, um, you know, sort of ish. Yeah, yeah. But, but everybody can, you know, sort of has their range and interpretation of those kind of feels. And then also depending what else, what's on the track and if that's laying down something that you have to fit into. But, um, yeah, it's, it's wild. Everybody's personality still comes through and um, or often can come through. And, and then sometimes, man, things are so cut up and, and uh, what Darren was saying that everything is so on a grid that there are times where you feel like it could almost be anybody. I know in the old days, people would say, Oh, you know, miss the idea of being able to absolutely identify, you know, a Keith moon every time you heard him, you know? And, uh, I mean, I think it's a great comment. You know, of course, Keith was always in the context of the who, but like someone like a Steve Gadd is a great example because you could identify his sound, whether we was playing with Chick Corea or Paul Simon, you know, in a completely different context, but a lot of times sound was the same. But, you know, another side of that coin might be a situation of a drummer that has to fit in to a situation where they want you on a high tune Gretsch jazz kit. And then the very next song, they may want you on a really dead Ringo kit and being able to, to swim in those streams and make that happen you know, there's an art to that as well. And maybe it's not as identifiable as exactly who the drummer is, but maybe that's not in this context for surviving, let's say, and working in a lot of different situations. Maybe having some transparency might be a positive thing. And then when, when the need is for to have a lot of personality that you can bring something to the table. But that, that's interesting having a gauge for when a lot of personality is needed and when more transparency is needed, you know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It, it's interesting. You bring up ghost notes and, and, and playing and, and there's nothing I like better than a drummer that has that ghosty snare thing or, you know, uh, going on all the time. It, it just brings this extra little rhythm to, you know, laying a track down. But as an engineer, lots of times it's some of the hardest things to bring out in a, in a drummer, because once you start adding a bunch of guitars and, and singers and whatever you're on, those ghost notes get buried so easily. And it's, it's, I struggle with that a lot, uh, mixing stuff, trying to make sure those ghost notes get heard uh, or at least get in there a bit. So it gets, gets that motion going. I guess that's the, the big thing, but uh, um, 
Uh, it's yeah, interesting. That's interesting. It is. Yeah. The ghost note thing is a trip. So do you have to deal with compression sometimes to, you know, to like bring those like yeah. lower notes up? Is it? Or use, um, try to get overheads in. So you get, um, you know, you get that, f you feel more of the kit more and that brings up uh, those little tiny things a bit more. Um, yeah. But it's tricky to get those, those ghosty feels in there. Cause I want to hear them all the time. Um, but they get buried really easy. Yeah, man. I'm a fan of that too. Like I love Purdy's you know, those feels and, and the inside stuff that's happening and percolating within his feels, you know, it's just like so magical. It's wild about that. You know, I've been in situations where the ghost note thing, they might love it uh, the day of tracking. And then when overdubs start happening, like if the rhythm guitar might be taking up some of that space, you know, all of a sudden there can be like, well, if the drums had this ghost noted thing happening and now there's not a space for the rhythm. So it's interesting about how, uh, I, I'm such a fan of what you're talking about, the ghost note thing too, but I've seen that swing the other way where people have been very excited about a feel that has a lot of that happening and then it go the other way sometimes too where they really want something bone dry because there's going to be a lot of other things fit around it. Yeah. And uh, that, so that, that gets into that radar of, you know, mind reading kind of in a way. I remember, I remember T-Bone Walk, a great bass player, saying this about Mickey Curry, who's a great session drummer. He said, man, I love Mickey, you know, because when he plays, I can hear all this stuff that's supposed to fit around him, you know, which I thought was so insightful about sort of a, a track that had space around it that things can be fit into, as opposed to maybe a track that had a lot of some of this subtle inside stuff, which can be, you know, there's no rules on this, but it was just an interesting contrasting uh, comment that made me think about what you're talking about, you know, the space that could take up and, um, Oh, it's a mind melt. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Here's an interesting question for, for both of you guys, obviously. Um, do you find when you're playing properly more on the road, uh, than anything else when you're playing kind of night after night, um, how much as a drummer, do you feel that you're just laying it down and everyone's playing it to you or you start really listening to what everyone else is playing and adjusting your playing to fit with what other anybody else is playing? Like you maybe find yourself five or six you no know, shows in and you find that the guitar play, player does this little neat thing in the verses and you're adjusting your playing to kind of fit with that or do you try to most of the time to sit right in your lane? Man, I, I love it. Um, you know, that depends on the context of who you're playing with. And, and it can vary from song to song. It can also vary within a song. Like there's some situations where they want the drummer to take charge and they rely on the drummer to take charge. And, and they really want a strong, confident cat that's going to lay it down. Yeah. And then there's other situations where men, they want a drummer that will fit in with what they're laying down and be really sensitive to it and not have some kind of like thing about taking charge at all. So it's this complete opposite thing that you have to be sensitive to if you're working. Like, I remember they would tell stories about Buddy Rich and also Al Jackson, a similar thing that like, if you ever question like an Al Jackson, I heard like the tempo, hey, hey man, is this a little fast or slow that he would almost kick your ass? Like the idea that, <laughs> that you were questioning, you know, like this is where it is and I'm the drummer and here we go motherfucker you know yeah and um the other side of that is they don't 
want that injury at all. I remember Ben Riley reading an interview with him that played great jazz drummer, played with Florence Monk, and he talked about how it was almost his family thing where, like, maybe, you know, he would count some tunes off and then someone, the bass player, like, it was very open and communicative and, like, it, there wasn't, like, this law, like, well, I'm the drummer and I'm going to do this, you know. And I remember when uh, I first started working at SNL, you know, and G. Smith, G. Smith was running the band, and it was very much about falling into what GE was laying down and, and, you know, being really sensitive to like, he was a very physical player, uh, you know, and he would stomp his foot and he would move physically in time. So you, you had some visual cues about where he wanted this to be. And it was about, about being inside that, you know, big time, you know, there's been other artists I've played with where, you know, if you follow them and listen to them too closely, they can lead you into a swamp. Like, right. like um, it's a trip, you know? Like, if you feel like you're making music with someone and maybe they're super dragging a lyric or something and you're just trying to be sensitive and sit with it, like, that balance of going and, and being organic and totally listening and following somebody versus, like, like okay, so they're really going to lay back on this, but I'm going to keep this in the center like that whole day, it's a real dance, you know? Like I remember um, I, I got to do this thing with Carol King where she redid the Tapestry record and we played it at Hyde Park, you know? And there were in instances of uh, her saying, hey, you know, great, da, da, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I feel like there's some times where maybe you're listening to me too much and not just like, and it was interesting, it was really insightful. It was like, you know, listening to me too much would comment. I, you know, and then it was a real lesson about staying in a lane, like you said, you know, maybe staying in a lane. So, man, this can go a million different ways. And it depends on the personalities of a situation. And uh, I've, I've been in bands where it's, you know, there might be a really strong personality that wants to cut everything, count everything off and, and take charge. And it's his band. And, and then to have the flexibility to sit with that and be, you know, be cool. Uh, and then the other side of the coin is the when they want you to count everything off and really be run the show in that way, you know. So, yeah, interesting. It goes a million ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it now nowadays when you go in and see a show when it's uh, you know a lot of tracks going on and there's no count in from anybody. The band just starts because they all have a click in their ear. I still find that the oddest thing for me to sit and just all, all of a sudden there's just everybody just starts and there's no click yeah. there's no count and there's no nothing um and that you know coming from a musician world that you, you just you always used to hearing that but it's pretty normal nowadays that you just you know a band starts but uh uh i still want to hear a couple clicks on the sticks or you know <laughs> three four yeah. Or something. <laughs> yeah 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 it feels really odd uh yeah jason you had anything you want to throw in there you probably have some questions you want yeah no 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 and i think on that on that same subject i think a big thing like sean was saying like you know i can't even imagine you know sitting and playing a gig with carol king let alone you know having her tell you don't listen to me too much which would almost be impossible <laughs> but you know just i think having an awareness like i think with drummers um being 
as musical as possible is important to understand what the other instruments are doing, just to understand what an acoustic guitar does. You know, where, you know, understand that the acoustic guitar sort of frequencies are within like sort of a hi-hat snare range, understanding the keys, understand, and you don't have to know everything that everybody's playing, but if you're at least aware of how these parts fit, you can pick maybe where you go from song to song, from whatever, you at least have some of that. And I know I, with students, I try to, when we're learning songs, I try to get them to listen to everything but the drums because, you know, we're going to play the drums, so you're not going to hear them anyways. But just to be aware of these other things that are going on over top of it and how the vocal, you know, I think that's, that's super important for drummers to sort of cue into and uh, uh, just an, an awareness of all those elements. But again, it's radar, like you said, Sean. It's just, you know, yeah. all, all these things, you just try to amass this, you know, and you, and you said, I, I remember as you, as you're talking about this, I remember at the, at the clinic, you had said, uh, you know, drummers should learn how to produce themselves in the studio and maybe not ask so many questions, but if you can produce yourself, a lot of times you can, you know, answer the questions before you even have to bother anybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's so great. Uh, that thing about, you know, being aware of other instruments, that that's such a great idea. Like, you know, if somebody is finger picking 16th notes on acoustic guitar, let's say, so if already maybe 16th notes are happening, you know, are the drums going to lay within the 16th and also play 16th? Or are they going to go to just eighth notes because there's already this motor happening, you know, within the music that's on a 16th note level? And But this thing about taking charge, you know, like I've been lucky enough to do this Songwriters Hall of Fame gig uh, for several years. And, you know, it's a trip like, for instance, like one year Aerosmith got awarded some stuff and you know, you have like 15 seconds to make a strong impression. Like, you know, and we were doing um, Sweet Emotion, I think. And man, I went and listened to, uh, you know, all the recent stuff on YouTube, checked out all, obviously the, the original recordings, but this idea of doing a ton of homework leading into the situation, like it gave me some insight into like, okay, so, if I had just listened to the original recording, maybe I wasn't aware of like where well, they're doing a little faster now, you know, on the road. And I wonder if that's where they're going to want to do it. And I would just maybe take a stab at it and try to take charge and play with a great feel. But, you know, versus if I had just listened to the original recording and not had this sort of background stuff of bringing to the table. Uh, so where I'm headed is, is that it's interesting how many clues are out there when you're in the, especially in these situations where it's like a house band situation and, you know, an artist maybe has a half hour to come on and work with the band and then the show's happening that night or something like that, you know. Yeah. And uh, there's been situations with, like, let's say John Prine, before he passed away, he was a part of this, the, the show. And, you know, it was very much about falling into what John Prine was, was laying down, you know. But then the very next thing was with a thing with Cindy Lauper and it was a more active track that you know about take the taking charge thing you know was more applicable and then it was interesting about how different she was doing it live over the last year than compared to like the original recording you know and then being in touch with that and stuff like that i remember uh stevie wonder was a part of one of these things and he goes drummer he goes drummer what's your name I said, oh, sean. He goes, sean he goes pick up a, a brush with your right hand and with your left hand pick up a stick and we were doing uh I think it was my Sharia Moore or something in the original recording had kind of like a, a groove that was a, a brush and a stick. 
And it was hearkening back to the original recording versus like the way they maybe were doing it on the road, you know. And uh, so I'm just throwing that out there as an idea that, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of clues out there about if you're coming to the table in these sort of quick situations as to how something's being played and if they need the drummer to take charge or it's more about sitting in what, what they're laying down and, you know, tempos and uh, are they consistent with the tempos or is it all over the place or is it always right at this thing, you know, for the last two years? And just a lot of interesting things out there to pick up on, you know. No kidding. Well, and with technology, going back to that, now you can find that. You know what I mean? Like if you have a gig coming up like that, you could totally suss that out on YouTube. There's going to be a video somewhere for you to sort of use that to your advantage, you know. Yeah. To sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. have insight, which they might be like, whoa, how do they even know that? It's like it's like in a studio. I, I always leave the mics up and I'm always listening as everybody else is talking, you know, because I think they may say something that's going to tip me off and I'll play yeah. it. And they might not, they'll be like, whoa, how did, how did you even know that was going to happen? It's like, well, I can, I can listen. I don't have to sit here and play, play the drums and tune the drums. I can be listening to what's going on in the whole room. You know, like you say, it's just, it's, it's awareness. I think that's gigantic. Yeah. Yeah, man, that sensitivity to what's happening in the space and what's being said. And, and, um, and that, what is the saying? Never pass up. Uh, an opportunity to keep your mouth shut if you can, or, you know, it's just interesting about like, you, you can really learn a lot by, yeah. Totally. Well, we have, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one. Uh, let's geek out on one uh, other thing uh, as far as drums go and uh, symbols are the, the question of the day. Um, what, what approach do you go, both of you go for when you're, you're obviously, you know, we've talked about snares and, and kits, kicks and, and all that, but when you're going into a session or even playing live, how do you approach picking the right symbols? Well, um, you know, I sort of, I'm overkill where I do take in a lot of options of things. And so, um, lately I've been landing on these, uh, these Zildjian Kurope symbols, which are sort of a throwback to the uh, hand-hammered Turkish symbols. And I wasn't sure at first if, if they would work in the context that, but man, they, they're kind of dark. They don't really stick out or poke out and uh, they fit, sit in a track really well. So I've been really enjoying those. The ride symbol thing is interesting. I've been also using sort of the drier rides that have some stick clarity that don't wash out, you know, if, if you're having to lay into it and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, I'll experiment with tape on the bottom of the ride symbol if I need more clarity or less clarity, if I want to open it up, you know, but a lot of that has to do with if you get into the ride symbol thing, how much wash versus how much clarity on a stick. And then the actual stick that you use, you know, like uh, I, I kind of use a big stick, but I find that in the studio sometimes going to a smaller stick really helps with, um, the right symbol clarity sometimes. Oh, yeah. uh, so, so it's a context thing and, and depending on the track and the setup, but the hi-hat thing, I, I sort of have a soft spot for um, the older, older new beats. They used to be thinner and uh, like seventies and before. And uh, so it's kind of got that a uh, little bit drier, less thick and uh, crisp, crisp thing, but the wash out anyway. So a thinner, thinner, like older, a new beat thing I've enjoyed, you know, 
but man, I tell you, it depends on the track. And there's a there's a there's an art to to putting symbols up that that match a track. So, you know, like something like an Abby Lincoln record, you know, symbols and the ambience of them can really cast a spell and a color within the context of things. And that would be a completely different a- approach, let's say, than playing on a pink a song with pink. Maybe that's just rock and roll. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so context many, is everything. Yeah. I mean, being a drummer, I mean, you have so many things to think about, let alone coming to a session and, you know, having all these symbols to think about, snares to think about, um, sticks to think about, uh, parts to think about. It's, it's, and, and thinking about what the producer wants, what's the engineer want, um, you know, should I take the lead? Shouldn't I take the lead? You know, all these things that, that it's just, is you know we all know but when you really break it down you think how complex it is being a drummer um and there's just so much to it and and i like you've talked right from the beginning is the whole radar thing is that how important that is great personality um being able to listen and watch and 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 know when to strike and um it's you know it's it's like anything like a singer it's half personality half um uh, talent, right? Um, it, it really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One, thing, one thing that, back to the symbols, just real quick. Yeah. One thing that, well, of the many things that I took away from watching Sean up close play, because I was lucky enough to sit three feet away when he was playing, was when he was playing his symbols, he would play them, but he wouldn't hit them. He wouldn't be striking the symbol like with, you know, the shank of the stick, he would play inside a little bit and it was a little softer. He was hitting them with force, but it was just a little softer because they would be more full and it wouldn't just be like glass breaking. It just seemed as you played physically on like, and you were hitting inside a bit more, it was just like, man, that just, it, it just changed how I played the cymbals after that. I was just like, that makes so much sense to not play it on the outside, just play it on the inside and you can actually push into it a little bit to make it, you know, it just did that rather than just, being yeah, but it was, no, no, that that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. Uh, you know, and it's wild again with the physical thing and, and context, man, there's times where that kind of like heavy playing, you know, will get you fired, you know, and yeah. then there's other times where it could get you hired because they want someone <laughs> that has a physical pre- presence, you know, yeah. and uh, but man, getting a big sound out of the drum, especially in a rock and roll context, like I remember uh, like Tony Williams had a grip that he used to talk about that was sort of, it was very, you know, in his later years, not, not like from the seventies onward, like when he started playing the big drums and, you know, the black dot heads and stuff, but it was all very single stroke orientated and he almost gripped back here. And I always thought it was interesting how big of a sound that got as far as it was a lot of language and single strokes and, you know, you know, and it was a big sound that almost, it applied to rock drumming in a way, as far as getting a big, sound but you know that's totally different than let's say levon you know with smaller sticks and like with the deadened sound and and kind of uh that approach so it's wild about you you know how the physical nature of getting a sound out of a drum and how you approach it and the context is a wide range there you know yeah yeah well, let's wrap up on a couple of quick questions. I know we've taken a lot of your time and it's been fascinating and uh, love this conversation. And a uh, uh, couple of things I always like to ask um, and say you're probably in your drum room there. If you had to leave 
the house or your where you keep all your dramas quickly for a reason, say there was a fire or something, what what would be the first thing that you grab on the way out? Uh, yeah, great question. Well, that that 12 by 7 Brady snare drum, uh, that is a pretty special drum. Uh, might look to grab that. And uh, I do have a pair of hi-hats that have been signed by like, you know, Roger Hawkins and Lee Vaughn and Jim Keltner. And like through the years, I've been able to, Purdy signed them and uh, Gad. And I mean, it's insane. The, and so I probably try to, to make sure I, I grab those too, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I do think there are special pieces of gear and, and, but also, you know, maybe they talked about Al Jackson once like showing up on, uh, the song, use me up. And he just sat down to a rental kit from SIR in Los Angeles and made it happen, you know? And so with drums and stuff, like if you, if you have your tuning and your touch and the muffling thing together and all that, I you know, New York, like, I related to this, like New York, there's a lot of house kits that you have to sit behind and sort of make it happen. Um, so the attachment to gear, I've tried to come to terms with as a drummer, not feeling locked into like, oh, I don't have my special snare here. I don't have, you know, it's like, man, let's make this happen with what's in front of us and make the ma- make it happen, you know one way or another. And so I, I like the idea of not being completely married to, to any kind of gear stuff and more like hoping to have the confidence of how to deal with any kind of situation I've thrown, thrown into gear wise and, and, and being positive about it, you know? Yeah. That's good. Uh, and uh, one last one I always like to ask every, well, actually I'll throw two quick ones because the last one's food related. So we'll get to that. Uh, (laughs) Obviously, you played a million places all over the world and, and played with a lot of people. Do you still have a place out there, a venue or a city or a country or any place out there that you haven't performed that you've it's on your list that says, I, I want to play here? Do you have one of those places? Uh, no, I tell you, I, I think more of it like I'm just so thankful for I, the the stuff I've been able to do and the people I've played with and it just feels so off the charts from somebody from a small town in Missouri yeah. that, that I just am humble and thankful about all of that. And, uh, you know, I, w- I would love to keep playing, obviously, but uh, I just am blown away about, you know, if I've played it, played at Madison Square Garden, it's like, you know, it's just crazy, you know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So I'm From a guy who's played a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and we'll, we'll do the food one real quick. I know when we, we tour, I always say that uh, the next best thing from, from actually playing the show is where we eat afterwards. And uh, uh, do you have a favorite spot out there somewhere where you play that you want to make mention of? Or there's a certain type of food you, you kind of pull to when you're on the road that you have to get? <laughs> right. Man, I you know I'm pretty open minded about food. I love I love so many different things. Uh, man, I haven't had a chance to go out and have great sushi recently. Uh, I love a good steak too, and then I'm also I'm cool to go vegetarian. I'm pretty open to all that. And um, man, yeah, all of the above. Let's go okay. everywhere. All right, I like <laughs> it. <laughs> Jason, do you have anything else you want to 
wrap up on? No, I, I just want to say it was just a treat to hang out with you this afternoon, man. This was this was a blast to to touch base again and and just hear this insight. I'm taking so much more away from this and and you know and again the fact that we met ten years ago and I can message you and we can put this thing together it just that blows my mind. I just can't I can't fathom. Yeah, man, Jason, I really appreciate it. It's so good to see you, man, and glad you're doing great. And anyway, honored to be here. I really appreciate you guys having me. Thank you, thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.